So we're ending our series today on the final words of Jesus, and I know this may seem odd because we were looking at the final words he spoke on the cross, but of course we come to Easter and the story is that's not the last that Jesus had to say. In fact, he had a lot more to say and the gospel writers record some of it, but we're going to look today at the very last words that they recorded of Jesus saying before he ascended. And that's going to be the end of this series um, that we've been doing during Lent. So I really hope that some of you had the opportunity to do some form of a Lenten discipline where you did some sort of fasting or you gave something up or perhaps you were more intentional about prayer or something in your life during that, that 40 days, that uh, not counting Sundays, that led up between Ash Wednesday and Easter. It really is a powerful rhythm to get into into your life. Um, and so something, if you didn't do it, I would encourage you to think ahead. We have a while till we get there, but I have found that it really, um, it really brings a more powerful impact in my life for Easter because I've been doing something that's been reminding me of the cost of what Jesus did in my life and my need for him as we come towards that, that time of year. So Easter last Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection, and then we're going to be looking at this um, passage from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Pop quiz, who knows what this section of scripture is called? It's got a special name. Most don't. This one has a name. I heard it. Ding, ding, ding. Great commission. Yes. The Great Commission, because Jesus is commissioning his disciples as he sends them out. It's only recorded in Matthew. So 28, um, 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we come to this text today, As we come to understand what these words mean for us, we ask that the Holy Spirit that was poured out upon those early disciples and is now in us and with us would speak to us and prompt us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So we said this is often called the the Great Commission. It's the marching orders for Jesus' disciples. They remember, if you remember the whole scenario, right? They, Jesus was arrested. They all ran away terrified. We get Peter sort of skulking in the darkness in the background, following him to the court, denying Jesus three times when they say he's his, you know, Jesus' disciple. And then we have, we know at least probably John was at the cross, but the others were gone out of the picture. Jesus is killed. He's put in the tomb. Then he's resurrected. We talked about that last week, how the the women hear the news first and they come to the the men. They all recorded a little bit differently, but basically the the boys don't believe the girls. 
say, no, it can't be true. And then, of course, even after some of the other men see it, you got guys like Thomas going, I'm not going to believe until I touch his hands and touch his side. And so Jesus meets with all of them. They all see him. They spend time with him. They eat with him. We have the story of Peter being reinstated on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where he grew up fishing. And um, all this happens. And they've been spending some time with Jesus again. And now he's leaving them. And he's basically leaving them with their instructions. What does this all mean? I'm sure he's been trying to explain. But here's what it means going forward. You're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, this, uh, this passage is one that I and many others were taught to memorize when they were younger. It's one of those popular memory verses, and it should be. I remember being the camp I was baptized at on the Columbia River in Oregon called Camp Crestview. I was there and they had this huge sanctuary, really big. It's like more of a gym, I guess, in the sanctuary. But um, probably like a hundred foot banner across the wall one summer had this verse on it. And before every worship service, we would recite it together. The idea was that was the theme of the week, but they also wanted it to be in us for us to memorize this and to think about it. So... That's been powerful for me because that's the same place I was baptized. That's the same place I, I really received my call to ministry when I was a young man, even though I resisted that for a long time. This has been uh, one of those verses that the church has held on to and understood to be for us. I've talked, interestingly, I have talked with just a couple of people who have said they believe that this was only for those first disciples and not for them. Now, I understand the theory and how you can say that. The problem with that is that we have 2,000 plus years of tradition of the church always understanding this text from the very beginning to be Jesus' marching orders, not just for 12 apostles, but for all who were gathered there, who were more than 12, who were gathered there around Jesus at this time, who saw him after he resurrected, and for the early church and beyond. That's how this has been understood. But it does bring up, I think, one of the problems that we run into today, and that's the idea of missions. By the way, if you ever would like to understand how the missions of the church have impacted the world and why we even have this thing today where North Americans send out missionaries to other countries and short-term mission teams, there's an excellent, excellent, excellent course. I highly recommend it to any of you who like learning and like academic type stuff. It's very heady, but it's worth it. It's called Perspectives. And there's that poster in the back, on that back wall. I left it up as a reminder for me and for others because it's a great step for those of you who'd like to learn a little bit more. It's called Perspective of the World Christian Movement. You can do the course online. They also offer it in person in different churches around the area at different times. So you can go on the website and find it. I've taken it and it really helped me understand missions a lot better. But this whole idea of missions, disciple making, evangelism, I would argue is often very misunderstood in the church today, especially in the North American church. And I hope to make it just a little bit more clear today. I hope to work a little bit of that out. And I think that for many people, they hear this passage, go and make disciples of all nations. And we have a sense of guilt, perhaps, of I'm not going and making 
disciples. Or we have a sense that this verse is for somebody else. Those that we sent to some place to go and make disciples. And this is because of this idea of going, right? I mean, there's this imperative in there. There's an exclamation point. Go. You don't stay here in Galilee. Don't stay by the lake. Go and make disciples. Of all, all the nations, and the word is in Greek is ethnos, and that's important. It's not just one of those silly things I'm bringing up to make you feel like I'm smart in Greek, because I'm really not very good at Greek. But ethnos means people group, like Every ethnicity, if you can think of it that way. Why is that important? Well, because today, for example, here in the United States, we go, well, this is a nation where everyone's heard the gospel. We take sort of that as an assumption. But that's not true. We know that there's these corners of the country, the northeast and the northwest, where there's a lot of people now who don't know the gospel, who are raised up in homes that have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Then we have things like our Native American tribes, who are largely not Christian. And living in Marysville, I can tell you that trying to figure out as a white Christian man how to enter into a Native American culture and share the gospel in a way that's meaningful is not as easy as it seems, even though we both speak English and live within a few miles of each other. So ethnicity is important because Christians who take this seriously go, we have to think about where the gospel is not being heard and then how we can get the gospel there and how we can play our part in that. So going to all those ethnicities. I have to say, when I was a kid growing up in the church, we had these visiting missionaries and I had this idea that missions was one of those things that happened in places like Africa. And I had an experience to go to Senegal with my church in Mountain View. Senegal's in Western Africa, right on the kind of the bulge there in West Africa. And we sat in a village. Jeff's been there. My wife's been there. We sat in a village among the Wolof people where it is, there's no electricity. There's no running water. We're talking about mud huts and thatched roofs. And I remember sitting there and having tea because in the middle of the day when it's hot, they always have this special green tea. They do this weird pouring thing. It was really kind of cool to watch. It's a very social event. And I remember sitting there around this circle with all of these, you know, African men. It was all men at this time. And um, having this tea. And I didn't speak their language of this village. And I remember thinking, this is what I always thought of missions. You know, here I am. I'm doing it. But at the same time, I had the understanding that just because I was there didn't mean that I was really fulfilling God's mission. And that was actually part of what we were doing, was asking the question, what might our role be here, if any? That was part of the trip that I was on, anyway. But why is sitting in a circle, having tea in this remote village in Senegal, missions, and sitting in Stanwood Starbucks, having tea or coffee, and talking with our neighbor who doesn't go to church not missions. Actually, I would say they both are missions. You probably know me well enough to say, I think they both are. But for some reason, we've got in our head that missions is something that happens out there. Missionaries are people we send far away, and we're not the missionaries. But that's not the way, again, that the church has understand this verse, and I don't think that's what Jesus intended when he shared it. So what do we mean by mission? I had a a seminary professor, a very intelligent woman who'd done a lot of mission work 
And she argued very strongly that mission had to be far away and it had to be cross-cultural and it could not be safe. So she discounted those of us who had been to safe places to do mission work, places like Senegal or Costa Rica. She felt like you should be in danger. Kind of a weird way of defining missions and I disagreed with her. I still disagree with her on that one. I do think that we are called to all nations, all peoples, those who are far away. And I do understand that we can get too comfortable here where we live and not really push ourselves to reach people who are outside of our comfort zone. I understand that that is a danger. But again, I would say missions is not just out there somewhere, someplace where we send people to. And by the way, as as a church, we do have a goal of identifying an unreached people group that we can somehow be connected to. And that language is very important, unreached people group. It's a technical definition. If you get into missiology, they have a way of defining it. You can go on to, there's some websites online that show percentages of where these people live in the world. There are some near us. They're all over the world. But an unreached people group, just a short definition would be a, an ethnic group of people where really there's not... Uh, a large group of Christians where you can expect that there would be a lot of people who have not heard the gospel. They do not understand who Jesus really is. So there's a lot of unreached people groups in the world. And um, those of us who are Caucasian people living here in Stanwood, Camino Island, we're not an unreached people group. So we need to be intentional at times about figuring out how we can participate with those who are trying to reach an unreached people group. So we are going to be doing that. I'm going to be heading to Cambodia in July with uh, our missionaries that we support. uh, One of them, Phil Cunningham. And I'll be looking at the work that some of the justice mission groups are doing there. And thinking about, you know, maybe this is something we can get worked into. If you want to look at the world and think about where the gospel is not... They kind of define it roughly by the 1040 window. So 10 degrees north latitude, 40 degrees south. You draw a band around the earth. Most of the unreached people groups in the world live within that band, which includes the home of Jesus, ironically, right? So that band goes around the world and it crosses around one of the most populated parts of the world, which is Asia. Densely populated, billions of people who are unreached. So I think that's something that we may want to be thinking about and talking about at some point. But I want to say it's both and. Missions is both sending and going and trying to reach people who aren't going to hear otherwise and sometimes far away. And it's reaching out and discipling people here who don't know the gospel. So real quickly, as we look at this text, there's three things I want to look at and just talk about. Making disciples, baptizing, and teaching to obey. These are the three things that Jesus gives in his commission. I want you to make disciples, I want you to baptize, and I want you to teach them to obey. Again, growing up, I had this idea, and I I have to admit I still fight this, of missionaries that we send as being super spiritual Christians. You know, if we could see with the Holy Spirit eyes, I imagine they had big S's on their chest. They were amazing. And to me, they, they still are a little bit superheroes. I'm in awe of people who can sacrifice so much for the gospel. Don't get me wrong. It's amazing. But when I look at this text and how Jesus sends them out, these first missionaries are not super spiritual. 
They're not superheroes. It's, when you think about the 11 disciples, they're already down one. Because one of them betrayed Jesus and took his own life. And it says right before the Great Commission, which was not on my memory verse and should have been. We read it today. It says right before that they go up onto this mountain. And for the first time, we see the disciples worshiping Jesus. But then right away it says, and some doubted. Some doubted. (laughs) Okay. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him multiply bread and fish. They've seen him bring back people from the dead. They've seen him touch lepers and heal them. If that wasn't enough, they saw him die and come back to life. They saw him appear in rooms with locked doors. And now he's about ready to head up into heaven. But some of them doubt. If you have doubts, you're in good company. You've seen a lot less than they have. You have a lot less evidence to stand on. Some of them doubted. And they were sent out. And I think if some of us would go, you know what? Why didn't Jesus just say, those of you who have doubts, why don't you stay here? We're going to put you in a special Bible study. And we're going to get those doubts erased. And then you're going to go out as missionaries. Sounds silly, but isn't that what we do? Right? You got to get it all figured out. You got to get it all together before you can do missions, before you can teach, before you can evangelize. Actually, I think it's kind of, we, we got it all wrong. It's, like, it's more like Mission Impossible. You know, Mission Impossible, that it's, they have all the movies out now, but it's been around a long time, right? And the, the premise is there's somebody who gets this mission. And it says, your mission, if you should choose to accept it, you know, and then it gives them the mission and it says, this message will self-destruct in, you know, seven seconds. But I love it because it says, if you should choose to accept it, right? And of course, they never, they never say no. Why is that? I don't know. Anyway, Jesus, I believe, is, is still saying this to us. He's like, here's your mission if you should choose to accept it. We think it's the other way around. We think it's like, well, there's a mission, but Jesus has got to choose us first. You know what? If you are here and you believe in Jesus Christ and you've been baptized, then you have been chosen by Jesus. And now it's just a question if you will choose to accept the mission that he has given to you. So the first thing, making disciples. Jesus said, go and you're going to make disciples. So often in the church, when we talk about discipling or making disciples, people tend to think and get confused with evangelism and, and disciple making or teaching. Evangelism terrifies us because evangelism is walking around with your Bible as we think of it and saying, you know, if you, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? You know, and believe, bam, you know, we're like thumping people with our Bibles and that, and we go, oh man, I don't want to be that guy with the megaphone at the Mariners game, terrifying people with the gospel, some crazy dude, right? We think that is evangelism. And then I think so often with discipleship, we think about this. So let me just clarify a couple of things. The first one, that's not evangelism, okay? I mean, it can be an entry point. Don't get me wrong, God can use anything. God can use anything. But the word evangelism comes from the idea of the good news. The good, the evangelism is simply sharing the good news of what Jesus has done in your life with someone. It's not threatening people with hell. Evangelism happens in stages. It's, 
sometimes, oh, it's so sweet, once in a while, you get to be there when it all just clicks, and oftentimes there's tears and someone says, I'm giving my life to Jesus, I I want that. Sometimes you get to be there, but evangelism often happens way before that. The Holy Spirit is pursuing someone. A lot of times it's one little conversation where you're sharing a piece of your story. That's evangelism. You don't get to see the end so often. That's evangelism. Discipleship and teaching, making disciples, what Jesus tells us to do. Yes, evangelism is a starting point because baptism is where it gets started. Baptism is a starting point. It's not an ending point. If you have to understand it all and get it all to be baptized, then we've been doing it wrong this whole time. And Jesus did it wrong because the disciples didn't get it all when they were baptized. Baptism is a starting point, not an ending point. Discipleship is what happens after. And it's lifelong. Making disciples is not a quick process. Making disciples is not what I'm doing right now. What I'm doing right now is what the Bible called prophecy. It's saying, here's a message from God's word for us today. I hope. That's what I'm trying to do. Right? And I yes, I am teaching. But teaching, I know in Western Christianity, we think this is teaching. You're all sitting there and you're listening to me and I'm teaching you. But most of us don't learn very well this way. Teaching is going to happen later. Teaching is going to happen when I'm out at Starbucks having a conversation with somebody and I'm learning. Maybe I'm with somebody else and I'm learning what it means to do evangelism, to make disciples, right? It's, it happens out there. I mean, pretend you were one of the 11 disciples hearing this command from Jesus. And he says, I want you to go and make disciples. And they go, oh, well, we need a building and we need a pastor if we're going to make disciples, and, and we need to start, huh? A committee and some money, and, right? But that's not the model that they had. If Jesus says, I want you to go and make disciples, remember, they are disciples. What's the model that they have? It's the model Jesus gave them. Well, so then you have to go, well, what did Jesus' model look like? Well, they lived together, they traveled together. Things would happen and Jesus would take his disciples aside and say, let me explain this to you. This is what God's doing. Right? He said, hey, you know what? These people are hungry. Why don't you give them food? Ah, how do we do that? That's, I mean, that's discipleship. That's the model that Jesus used. So if that's discipleship, then we really need to rethink this whole idea of what we've, how we do it. You can't do it in a classroom in a church building. That might be a part of the learning experience, but that is not discipleship. And this is so, so, so important for kids. The church has always believed that our kids are our kids. They're not just the kids. Uh, My kids aren't just mine. They're our kids. Ever since the disciples of Jesus started having kids, they understood that disciple making has to start with kids. We've got a lot of problems with this because today we've um, also delegated this off to youth ministry professionals a lot of time. Or sometimes parents think it's all on them. And neither one of those would be accurate for discipleship. And this is why it's breaking down. This is why we have so many young people who don't follow Jesus after they graduate from high school. It's because no one's discipling them in the way that they need to be discipled. 
Here's the things we do know. The number one influence on a child's faith are their parents. Number one. So if we want to disciple kids, and if you don't have kids and you want to help disciple kids, what do you do? You disciple the parents, right? You help the parents so they can disciple their kids. That's how that works. Disciples making disciples. Number two, we know that discipleship doesn't happen in church building. And I just said that. It's, you can't do it here. I cannot teach Calvin how to follow Jesus sitting in a chair in the church. It's not going to work. He's not going to understand what that looks like if that's the only instruction he gets. The other thing, the third thing we know is that most recent research has been done on this. A lot of it through Fuller Youth Institute down in California. Who's been asking the question, the kids who do follow Jesus beyond high school, what do they have going for them? You know what they found? They have five, at least five adults in their life who are believers, who are Christians, who are invested enough in their life. And they, they looked at it in just a little minimal way that they would show up at some event they were doing. Whether that would be like a sporting event or a high school graduation or a speech competition or whatever. Like they care enough about them. They're not family members. There are other Christians, adult Christians in their life who care enough that would and go to something that they did. They needed at least five. So that just destroys our youth ministry models. Because youth ministry models are based on having a lot of kids with just a few youth leaders. I've had, you know, I've had some amazing youth leaders in my life. They had a huge impact on my life. But if that's all I ever had, if I didn't have those other adults, because I look back at my life and I did, if I didn't have all those other adults, I don't know where I'd be. And when I look back, I did 14 years of youth ministry. When I look back at all the youth ministry I did, and I look at the kids who are still following Jesus, I can look at every one of those kids and name a number of other adults, usually in the church, who were part of their life, not because I programmed them into their life, but because they were part of their life. Sometimes we programmed them in. We did a, a great mentoring program for confirmation. That was peaceful. I think that's good. So those, if we're talking about disciple making, and I'm applying this to kids because I think this is important, but it, of course it works with all of us. I want to say this is one of the reasons I strongly believe in missional communities. If they don't do anything else and they fail in every other way, the kids who are in our missional communities already have at least those five adults. Already. It's not rocket science. It's not as hard as we often make it. So the second thing Jesus said to do was to go out and to baptize. He said make disciples and go out and baptize. Baptism has always been that critical starting point. It's the initiation into the church. This is why when parents want it, we baptize infants. Because it's the beginning life in the church. It's not about understanding enough. It's not about knowing enough. And we always baptize them into the identity, into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. Notice, though, that baptism always comes before or alongside the teaching. So again, this is where we've got a mistake. We're like, well, we're going to put you through a program once you know enough, once you can answer the quiz questions, then we're going to baptize you. But Jesus says, go out and baptize, and then make disciples. And as I mentioned, it's very interesting that Jesus sends out the doubters to baptize too. This is so important. You've got to get this. There are disciples who are with Jesus, who despite all they have seen, who have touched his hands now, who said, I won't believe unless I touch all that. 
They're still doubting. And Jesus says, hey, you doubter, go and baptize someone. Boy, Presbyterian Polity would have a hard time with that one. I can tell you that right now. That's not making it past our committees, right? you got to have the pastor do the baptism. They have to have done all the questions and answered them right and got past all that. And then you can baptize. That's not the way Jesus did it. Baptism is the beginning point. It's something that we're all called to do. Now, just to be clear, I'm not sending you all out to start doing some baptisms. We do have a process. I do think there's some real good reasons for that. But when in doubt, baptize. Right? That's Jesus' marching orders. The third thing is that Jesus said, I want you to teach, teach them to obey my commandments. Teach them to obey. Okay, I already said, the teaching happens in the stuff of daily life. This is where the real teaching happens. It's when those things are happening and you say, well, what did Jesus say about this that I'm facing? What does it mean to follow Jesus in this situation? We had, boy, we had some great conversations in our missional community when our kids were struggling with a teacher at school. A number of us had kids with the same teacher. And it was a really good time for us to, I mean, that's, that's discipleship and teaching right there. How does what we believe in our head and things we talk about apply to this really tough situation? I mean, that's where that, that teaching happens when we work it out. But Jesus says, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. Again, when I was younger, if you had asked me, what did Jesus teach you to obey? I think I would have said, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, obey your parents. You know, as a, when I was a young, young man, I probably would have said, don't smoke, drink, chew, or go with girls that do. That was kind of what I was taught. I mean... I would say those were the things that Jesus taught us. But now I, I'm older and I think about these things more and I dig in a little bit deeper and I go, well, Jesus didn't exactly teach us the Ten Commandments. Yes, he did in the sense that, you know, he's God and he gave us the Ten Commandments. But in terms of Jesus telling his disciples, I want you to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's not what they're thinking, is it? They're thinking about the things that Jesus taught. And they're the things that were recorded in the Gospels. And so we go, well, what, what were the things that Jesus taught? Of course, in Matthew 5, Jesus digs into the Ten Commandments. He says, you've heard it said that you should not commit murder, for example. But I tell you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you've already committed murder in your heart. That's not exactly a commandment. I mean, I, I think he's upholding the idea you shouldn't kill someone. But he's not exactly giving them a new command there. But there are times when he does say that. The one that sticks out the most to me is John 13, 34. Because Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. And you go, okay, here he is, he's speaking. What's he say? That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should love one another. That's the big one, I think, that Jesus gives. Now, of course, he was tested by a lawyer who came to him and, you know, he said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, well, what do you read the scriptures? It says, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind. You should love your neighbors yourself. That's it. Right? That he says, all the, Jesus says, all of the law and the, the, the prophets hang on these two. Love God and love your neighbor. So Jesus certainly 
had those at the top when you talk about his commandments, but there were a lot of other things Jesus told them. And they were things like, you should pray in this way. And he gave us the Lord's Prayer, you know, as a model for how we should pray. Um, He says things like, hey, when people are hungry, you give them something to eat. That's a commandment. He tells them to go, right? Go into this passage and others. He says, go out into all the towns and share the good news. He tells them to heal the sick. He tells them to proclaim the good news. He tells them to love their enemies. I actually have a list. It's not a very long list. I have a list here I printed out of all the commands that Jesus gave. And you know, there's a lot of them have to do with things like don't, don't swear and make false oaths. Um, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. That kind of thing. Um, don't turn, you know, turn the other cheek. Someone attacks you. Don't, don't attack them back. Um, love your enemies. We talked about that one. Instead of making a big show of your prayers, pray privately. These were the kind of commands that Jesus gave. So they're not as big as we think of the Ten Commandments, but they have a lot to do with those two things he said were the most important, loving God and loving your neighbor, rather than religiosity. So he says, go, and I want you to teach. I want you to make disciples. I want you to baptize. And I want you to teach them to obey these things that I commanded them. Show them how to live out loving one another when you're angry with each other, when things are hard. And then, of course, the very, very last things Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends. He says, I am always with you to the very end of the age. I am always with you. Jesus is not leaving us alone in this. We are not making disciples. We're not baptizing. We're not teaching out of our own knowledge and strength. We're participating in what Jesus has done, which is why I do think that one of the most helpful things we can do throughout our day is to simply ask God, um, you know, God, what are you doing in the lives of the people around me? How can I be a part of what you're doing right now? Let's pray. Father, I don't want any of us to leave here with a heavy burden or weight or guilt on us like we're not doing enough. But I do want us to be to be able to leave here with an increased sense of your Holy Spirit, your love for the people who are around us, your desire for everyone to understand the good news and the freedom that comes with life in you. Give us open eyes, open ears, open hearts to what you're doing around us, we pray. Jesus' name. Amen.